Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It is a massive episode 44. I'm your co-host Mike Parsons and as always I'm joined by the man with a plan straight out of Brooklyn, Mr. Chad Owen. Oh, good evening, Mike. How are things in Bucharest? Ah, you sound so authentic when you say that, Chad. I wish I could reply in some great Romanian street slang, but I'm just going to say I am doing great. It's late here in the evening in Bucharest, and I am on the tail end of a big European tour. I am totally energized by all the great people that I've been catching up with and all the hard work that we've been doing. You've recovered, I hope, from your massive tour. What's been news? Did you enjoy your Thanksgiving? Yeah, my wife and I hosted some family. It was kind of our first time hosting ourselves, which was a nice mm. fun experiment. And we might have bitten off a little more than we could chew, pardon the pun. <laughs> I think we made like 10 or 11 dishes. Oh my gosh. We went all out. Okay. Well, at least you didn't have to cook for like a week after, right? Yeah, we're still polishing off the leftovers. But it seems like Amsterdam was on your tour, right? And you got to say hello to some of our Amsterdamer listeners. Yeah, certainly. We got a lot of fans in Bucharest and Amsterdam. And so a big shout out to them. And it's just so fabulous. Chad, we have to start planning our live shows for next year. So just a production note to you, sir. Any excuse for me to get to the land down under, I will. Yes. I think that should be our new stretch goal for next year. Let's get you and Nicole, let's get the both of you down to Sydney. Let's enjoy some sunshine and some bright, fresh innovators that are abundant in Sydney. But on the theme of food and Thanksgiving, we've got something to chew on this show, Mr. Chad Owen. I mean, we are going, let's say, all out. we got a brand new series. We've got a titan of business. Where are we going on this adventure? Well, we thought we would take a turn into the land of investing. Also just wanted to give a quick shout out and thank you to Gary Hoover for our last episode. It's always amazing to bring guests on the show. He's our first repeat guest, so... No, he's the second. Sorry, Simon, I... Uh... Don't forget, we've got Brendan as well. I mean, we're just going to have to bring them all back. we got Simon Banks. we got the whole crew we can bring back. we got Lauren. And we should throw in some new ones, I think, for 2019. What do you think about that? We've got some ideas on who we might bring back. Yeah, so we're starting off a new series. Mike and I have really enjoyed chunking our land through innovation and entrepreneurship into these kind of four individual series, if you will, who better to start with on investing than Mr. Warren Buffett himself? Oof. You know, his nickname is the Sage of Omaha. Yeah. And I'm always surprised at how we kind of jump outside of, you know, the traditional tech and Silicon Valley world, and yet still the same themes and values and habits. Isn't it crazy, huh? Yeah. I mean, everywhere we go, regardless of discipline, we find that people love to learn, very focused, get up early in the morning, think differently, and have the courage to stay at it when it's tough. You know, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, so we're really excited to bring, I believe Warren's the oldest living person that we've brought you some insights from. Not only do we have just 
you know, his business acumen, but he's had many years to formulate and hone the insights. So we've got really great clips. I think we can't really undersell Warren Buffett. I mean, come on, this guy, you know, his net worth is about a cool $88 billion. Now, we were recently talking about this, Chad. Is Warren the biggest philanthropic donor in history or is it Bill Gates? I think they're both kind of duking it out for the heavyweight of lifetime giving, but he has given over $35 billion and plans to continue doing so for many years. And I think a lot of his estate will go to charity. His children run a nonprofit foundation that that gives to needy. And he does all of this and lives in the same old simple house that he purchased in Nebraska in 1958. And he is quite the character, isn't he, Chad? Yeah. It's funny. He joked, you know, saying I could probably live on a hundred thousand dollars a year if I still had my private jet. So it was like the one thing that he didn't want to give up that uh, his billionaire's lifestyle affords him. (laughs) He is a really remarkable. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is, you know, he is in most experts point of view, the best investor ever to have lived. When he invests in a stock, there's like the Buffett effect. It literally, regardless of the economics and the financials of any given stock, when news breaks that he's invested, stocks go up. And I don't think we can even begin to imagine how good he is. He has outperformed all of the algorithms. He stands alone as an investor, as a philanthropist, has given so much. I think he is such a fascinating fascinating guy. And what a great opportunity for us to sort of dig into the world of investing. And he brings it in such a down to earth fashion. I mean, you just know how wealthy this guy is when you listen to him. Yeah. I think actually this intro clip that we have of him giving a tour of his office really kind of sells you on that personality that, yeah, he just thinks of himself as a little kid from Omaha that learned how to invest from his father and from reading the investment texts of the day. I would think that $80 billion is (laughs) the proof is in the money. So here's a great clip of Warren giving us a tour of his office. Well, I've been in this building 50 years. They've moved me around a little bit. History on the walls of legendary investor Warren Buffett's office. I formed my first partnership in May of 1956. So this was a year-end balance sheet, which I typed myself. In fact, you'll probably find a few typos in it. And these are my partners I had at the time. And this was my father-in-law. That was my roommate in college. That was his mother. That's my Aunt Alice. That's my sister Doris. And that's her husband Truman. And that was the gang. Yeah, if they they kept a $10,000 investment... And then when I liquidated the partnership, reinvested that in Berkshire Hathaway, uh, they would now have about uh, uh, $500 million. <laughs> I did very well with small amounts of money back in 1964. And when a panic happens with a really good company, I like to buy. <laughs> Buffett's M.O. for investing. This 1901 New York Times article reminds him daily of an important lesson. We never get out on a limb ride. We always have lots of money. We never borrow a lot of money first campaign I got really active in was when I was 
10 years old in 1940 and Wilkie was running against Roosevelt, my dad thought that if Roosevelt got elected that there'd never be another election. <laughs> a vocal Republican in his earlier years, Buffett now leans left and is a big Obama supporter. We were talking about the economy and, and I brought along some, some figures that, that I thought would be of interest to him. That was when I got the presidential medal of freedom. But he's never had political ambitions like his father. That's my dad campaign picture when he was 39 years old running for Congress the first time in 1942. This is my dad's desk. This sat on his desk uh, when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old. I always admired it. This is my favorite thing in your office. I oh, need yeah. one of these. The yeah, too, hard, is, yeah, this the is too the, hard box. Right. That, there's a lot of things that belong in there. The real problem is if they belong in there and I don't realize it. <laughs> and then there are the fun things, like the model Mars rover given to him by students at Caltech. That beats getting a t-shirt out. And the mock Sports Illustrated cover. I think if they ever bring me out, it'll be his water boy. <laughs> no fancy flat screen TV, just an old tube. No, no computer. That means no email, perhaps a secret to Buffett's success. Poppy Harlow, CNN, Omaha, Nebraska. The guy making the most money on Wall Street doesn't even have email, Chad. I mean, he's just like that uncle or that grandpa that you just love to chat to, isn't he? Yeah, it's really interesting as we get into some of Warren's mental models and the way he thinks and his habits. He doesn't believe that he has any kind of innate genius that isn't accessible to others. He just attributes it to learning and really sticking to what he's doing. So I find Warren is a great example of kind of the everyman innovator in a way. Yeah, yeah. He really paints, I think, a better, more realistic picture of the fact that we can all be innovative in our own ways if we kind of can find our unique ability and really, really focus on it. Yes, so true. So true. He is a great example of focusing on what you're good at. In fact, he has a ton of very powerful behaviors and we're very lucky. We're going to have a bunch of those coming up right now. So there's a lot to learn here. And I think, you know, we're going to look at his behaviors, the things that he does every day to really think and behave differently. Um, the other great thing is we're going to break down this success that he's had by really getting a bit of a deep dive into Berkshire Hathaway. And then the second half of the show is going to be all about the mental models he uses for investing. And he even draws on references to some of our favorite shows on Moonshots. So there is a lot ahead for everybody on the show. And remember, if we're mentioning things that you're really, really interested in, be sure to check out our show notes at moonshots.io, where we'll have all the links to every single show. You can listen to Chad and Mike countless times, moonshots.io. But in looking, Chad, at all these behaviors that Warren has, where do you want to start as we start to decode him and learn from the master himself? So there's a great interview I found of Warren Buffett and Jay-Z, of all people. And what was really interesting was because you would think that Warren and Jay-Z couldn't be more different from one another, the interviewer was really focusing on their kind of shared history in you know how they overcame some challenges when they were younger and how they have stayed so successful. Warren, over the course of 70 plus years of investing in Jay-Z, you know, 35 years in the hip hop industry, you know, far outliving the kind of expected, you know, life of an R&B and hip hop artist. 
And I just love the simplicity of these next three clips in how Warren describes how he's been so successful. And it's really accessible to each and every one of us. And so that's why I'm excited to share it with the audience. And this first one's really just about finding role models and picking some heroes and then understanding what their habits are and emulating them. And that seems to have been really successful for Warren. I urge everybody, you know, and then I talked to them in high school about this and, 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 and colleges, just do, develop, develop the habits. You've got the brain power, you've got the energy, but develop the habits of success and, and look around you at the people that you admire, you know, and list what makes you admire them compared to somebody else that looks equally strong or equally talented. And those are, those are things that you can do. I mean, just write them down and, 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 uh, you know, people like people that are they're, they like them if they're if they're humorous and they're friendly if they're if they're uh, if they give credit to the other fellow. I mean, I, and and they don't like them if they're stingy, you know, or they overstate and overpromise and all those sort of things. Well, that's decision. That's a decision you make. So, so I I encourage everybody to build your own moat around yourself. The obvious thing, I think everybody knows who our heroes are because we tend to do shows on them, don't you? <laughs> just go back through all the shows, yeah. There's no secret there. Just look at the back catalog. But are there any heroes that you particularly have, Chad, that you'd like to call out as being people you look at and go, okay, well, if I can be a bit more like that, life will be good? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get a little sentimental here, but like I have to call out my grandfather. Oh. Vic, I know you're not listening, but if you were, <laughs> that would be amazing. He still got his flip phone, so I'm not sure if <laughs> I'm not sure if he'd be able to listen to it. But yeah, I think, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have uh really great male role models in my life as as well as female role models like grandmother Peggy. The two of them I think really at least in terms of, you know, how to be a good person and live life in harmony with others. They instilled many great habits in me. Even just the simplest thing of saying please and thank you and holding doors open for people. They're the little things, but if you do them for your entire life, just imagine how many doors you've held open and how many times you've said please and thank you. So I have to say thank you to the two of them. Ah, oh, that's awesome, Chad. Well, now you've inspired me to do the same. I think outside of the business world, I would reference a man by the name of Roderick West, who was the headmaster at my school in Sydney, Australia. And he was a tour de force and he had thousands of boys under his care and he took time to know each and every one of us. And for me personally, he spent way too much time trying to keep me on track as some sort of wayward youth. But I couldn't tell you how much he was a role model for literally thousands and thousands of young men at Trinity Grammar School. And he was phenomenal. So a tip of the hat to him. He's no longer with us, but an absolute titan of education in Australia and a very special man. It was fun for me to think and reflect after, you know, because Warren holds up his father as a role model for him, who was, you know, an investment advisor in Omaha and inspired him to learn at a very young age. I think he was like investing at age 11 or 12 you know, alongside yeah. his father. Bought his first stock at 11 and he filed his first taxes at 13, if you can believe it. 
<laughs> yeah, it was fun to kind of hear him validate what you and I are doing here on the show, as mm-hmm. you know, we're hoping to learn from our role models and heroes here on the show. Mm. Another clip from this interview is Warren talking about the value of independent thinking and how we've heard this idea of staying the course from many people here on the show. And here's Warren's specific take on just that. You don't need a lot of brains in this business. I mean, I've always said, if you got an IQ of 160, give away 30 points to somebody else because you don't need it in investments. What you do need is emotional stability. You have to, you have to be able to think independently and you have to be, you have to be, when you come to a conclusion, you have to really not care what other people say and, and, and just follow the facts and follow your reasoning. And, and that's, that's tough for a lot of people. It, uh, that part, I, I think I was just lucky with. I was born that way. It never bothered me if people disagreed with what I thought, uh, as long as I felt I knew the facts. I mean, I, there's a whole bunch of things I don't know a thing about. I just stay away from those. Uh, so I stay within what I call my circle of competence. You know, that uh, Tom Watson said it best. He said, you know, he said, he said, I'm no genius, but I'm smart in spots, and I stay around those spots. Well, I try and stay around those spots, and I, I just don't have a a problem if if uh, if somebody says you know you're wrong on something I just I go back and look at the facts and and, and I think that I think that really is much more important frankly than than having a few points of IQ or or having an extra course or two in in school or anything of the sort you need emotional stability. What I really like about that, Chad, is the way he talks of, you know, really thinking independently. And I think if I'm an entrepreneur listening to our show, a product designer, thinking independently is crucial because then you start creating things that solve problems in a radically different way. And you don't just copy and paste from everyone else. So I really want to call this one out for the audience. Independent thinking is very powerful, but it takes a lot of work. And I think the kind of follow-up, the one-two punch here from Warren is he focuses on a few, what did he call them? Spots of interest, circles of interest, Chad? What did he call them? He's referencing Tom Watson. There's spots where I know things and I stick to those spots. Yes, but I like that because Warren has been famous in terms of investing and saying, I'm not going to invest in any tech stocks because I just don't understand the business. And he'll invest in very plain seeming stocks because that's what he knows and has been interested in for 70 years. Uh huh. And so I think there's a lot to learn there, not only in the independent thinking, but knowing your strengths and playing into those. Him and Jay-Z are obviously jamming at this point because he's got another thought for us. And this really touches on one of our favorite subjects, Chad. This is all about learning. So let's have a listen to Warren Buffett on learning cumulatively. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. I mean, that doesn't mean that industries stay good forever or businesses stay good forever, but but learning to think about business models, what I learned at 20 is useful to me now. What I learned at 25 is useful to me now. And so it's not it's not so it's not a field that changes dramatically in terms of the underlying principles. It's like physics. I mean, there's underlying principles. Now, they're doing all kinds of things with physics they weren't doing 50 years ago. But, but if, if you know the, if, if you got the principles, if you know what makes a good business, if you know what makes a good manager, you know, if you know what makes a, a, a good product, uh, and you learn that in one business, you can, there is some transference to other businesses you go along. And you learn what things you, you're not gonna understand. I mean, knowing what to leave out is just as important as knowing what to focus on. <laughs> and uh, 
I don't think I can win every game. You know, somebody said, how do you beat Bobby Fischer? You play him any game except chess. So I don't play Bobby Fischer chess. <laughs> and that's, there's a lot of value to learning that over time and, and, and learning what you're good at and what you're not good at. Yeah, I think there's this fascinating subtext here where he's talking about learning almost in like investing terms of compound interest or, you know, spend your time focused in learning things that will provide value over a long period of time. I just love the way in which he can sort of combine this idea of math and learning together. And I truly believe it's just the good old story of continuous hard work. Create small gains every day, but then you zoom out, and if you've done it for a couple of years, you sit back and go, whoa, geez, that is a body of knowledge in the case of what he was referencing in, in terms of learning. So there you've got it. Like, There's three things already that we can take from Warren. Nominate your heroes and work out what their habits and behaviors are and mirror them. Think independently, stick to your spots, stick to your strengths, and continue to learn cumulatively, and you'll be really surprised about what you get at the end there. I think those aren't those great behaviors that we could literally all turn up at the office tomorrow, Chad, and start doing them, right? Yeah, so I, I'm going to challenge you and I right now to choose one of these things to maybe focus on here going forward. I have a reading list that's a mile long, and sometimes I get distracted maybe by something that's, I don't know, trendy or you know, interesting in the moment, but I think I'm going to kind of revisit my, my reading list to see and understand if I can't find something that will have maybe longer returns on learning, if you will, ROL, going forward. So I think that's what I'm going to take away from those. That's a good one. I think I'll take your challenge and, and I'll look at some heroes and see if I can take a little bit of time to reflect on what they do so well and try and incorporate some of those habits into my life. But what a great challenge. So thank you for that, Chad. But I think what we need to do just for a moment is just to segue ourselves into talking about the company that Buffett founded called Berkshire Hathaway Inc. And this is quite a ridiculous story. I mean, this company is now one of the biggest public companies in the world and has a portfolio of companies, which is gigantic. So I'm trying to think of the biggest one that people would probably know. I mean, he's a big shareholder in Coke, in Apple, Geico. He's just in so many different companies. Oh, Mike, the list goes on. We've got American Express, Bank of America, Charter Communications, Delta Airlines, General Motors, Goldman Sachs, Southwest Airlines, Wells Fargo, <laughs> so many more. You got the list. I was just going off the top of my head. That was good. Now, if you look at all of those companies, he manages them in a unique way and he creates all this value. And we've got a clip here where the Financial Times in London does a very forensic breakdown of what the business of Berkshire really is. Now, just a heads up, this is a little dry. It's a little serious. It's a little FT, but... Look past that and you, what you're going to hear is a very sharp, a very concise articulation of all the value that's been created inside of Berkshire Hathaway. People flock from all over the world to hear Warren Buffett's investment wisdom. It's why they call him the Oracle of Omaha. 
After five decades of success, his investment vehicle, Berkshire Hathaway, is one of the largest companies on the planet. For many years, Berkshire was most famous for its collection of stock market investments, shares in the likes of Coca-Cola and American Express. But it's been buying whole businesses too since the very beginning. After all, why buy a minority shareholding if you could afford the whole company? As Buffett says, quoting Mae West, too much of a good thing is wonderful. The Oracle of Omaha deserves a second nickname, the Conglomerate King. Berkshire was actually an historic name in textile manufacturing when Buffett took control in 1965, but he didn't plan to reinvest its profits in a declining industry. The money went instead into the stock market and into a 50-year acquisition spree that's accelerated in recent years. There have been insurers, chocolate makers, newspapers, retailers, private jets, manufacturers, other conglomerates, giant power companies recently, and North America's major railway, BNSF, to top it off. Beyond his investing prowess, there are a couple of extra secrets to Berkshire's success. The power of the float and the power of compound returns. There's a reason Berkshire's first acquisitions were insurance companies. Insurance premiums are effectively a free loan. You don't have to pay any interest, just make sure you don't pay out too much in claims. These premiums are known as the float and they act like leverage for an investment portfolio. So for five decades, Buffett has been investing the world's cheapest money. Even today, insurance is at the heart of Berkshire. It's one of the biggest global reinsurers. It's expanding in commercial insurance, and it owns Geico, whose cute mascot has the most famous English accent in US TV commercials. This is where Buffett has got after 50 years investing the profits from all Berkshire's businesses, plus that extra money from the insurance float. By compounding returns, you only have to beat the market a little bit most years to make a huge difference over time. Beat the market a lot for 50 years, and you too might become the conglomerate king. But can Berkshire possibly keep growing now it's gotten so big? And does such an eclectic collection of businesses belong under one roof? Will present or future shareholders turn against its size and its unusual structure? And what will happen as Buffett's heirs loosen their grip? These are the central questions as Buffett celebrates his golden anniversary. Does the conglomerate outlive the conglomerate king? Yeah, thanks for finding that clip, Mike. It, as dry as the delivery is, I, I think this story <laughs> is very, very interesting. And it shows you even more the kinds of companies that Warren has invested in and divested from over the years. And some of them are seemingly simple or banal, but I think the returns of the company show that many of them, if not most of them, were quite wise and shrewd investments. Absolutely. And I think what's exciting for all of our listeners is we're actually going to show you in the second half of the show, we're going to show you exactly the thinking that he adopts in order to create amazing returns. And I think whether you want to put on your entrepreneurial hat or whether you want to put on, hey, I've got some spare cash, where should I put it hat? Either way, 
you need to tune into that second half of the show because there's a ton of really good stuff. And we have an absolute killer clip where he dissects uh, one of our favorites, Jeff Bezos and Amazon. So plenty to stay tuned for. But before we do that, Chad, I feel that this is time for one of our audience favorites, the Chad Book Review. And we've got a very special one today. Why don't you uh, unleash us on this very rarefied Chad Book Review? Sure. So it's not a book per se, but a letter instead. I'm sure that many of our listeners are familiar with Jeff Bezos's annual letters that he sends out to Amazon shareholders. I'm pretty sure that he was very inspired by Warren and his annual letter to shareholders, which he makes publicly available. You can look to the show notes for a link to that. And I think 30 or 35 previous years letters, and they're all worth reading. Warren writes every single one of them, every single word of them. And you really get a sense for who he is and how he thinks not only about his investment strategies, but how he's also running this conglomerate, you know, how he sees different parts of the business changing over time, his, you know, thoughts on economic outlooks at the time and what that means for not only Berkshire Hathaway as a whole, but different segments of industries, you know, that he has invested in. So I've read some of them on and off, but I went back and reread 2017's letter, which came out at the beginning of this year. And I mean, I think it's worth reading alone just for his kind of folksy wisdom. And again, you really feel like he's talking directly to you. I think that's you know a power that he has and that Berkshire Hathaway has. And there were some clips we had about kind of the crazy, I would say like Warren mega fans that descend upon the annual shareholders meetings in the tens of thousands. It's not just like you get a thousand people that show up at these things. It's like 30 and 40,000 people. And can I just interrupt by saying both Warren and his business partner, Charlie Munger, sit on stage all day. Both gentlemen are over the age of 80. For like eight hours at a time. Yeah, and they just field questions from like 30,000 people and they just keep going and going. And the audience is absolutely riveted by just this fountain of wisdom. So I do agree these letters to shareholders are just full of gold and wisdom about investing in business. He keeps it incredibly simple and understandable and relatable. Did you go back past 2017? What's it like looking in the archives, Chad? Well, it's fascinating. They all sound the same. It's just like the company names have changed. Like I went back to 1970, I think, and the letters are shorter because the holdings weren't quite as large back then. Like I'm looking at the 2017 letter. He's talking about acquisitions and there's this purchasing frenzy. And he says, it's a bit like telling your ripening teenager to be sure to have a normal sex life when it comes to why everyone's (laughs) interested in purchasing an acquisition. Like there's funny things like that, that you find in these letters, but for anyone that has any passing interest in either investing or in Berkshire Hathaway and how Warren and Charlie and all of their CEOs, it's like 50 or 60 CEOs that Warren technically manages. Right. It's really dense. It's like 15 pages, but it's really dense and packed with a lot of amazing information. I mean, some things that I picked up specifically 
their acquisition strategy, you know, the, the four types of companies that they look to fully acquire reports on different industries and kind of macroeconomic trends, the importance of the insurance business, you know, that the Financial Times guy was talking about. I mean, he even talks about float and how it's kind of one of his principles to not take on a lot of debt and how they've been able to get leverage in their business is to purchase insurance companies because they have this massive float of all these premiums and it is essentially free money, you know, as long as you're running a a good, legit insurance company. Mm. But I think actually my favorite takeaway, and this is an amazing takeaway, and I, as of this week, have implemented this for myself and my own financial planning and investments. So 10 years ago, in 2007, Warren made a bet with some of his investment friends that essentially investing the same amount of money in an unmanaged S&P 500 index fund. So for those of you that may not be familiar with stocks, S&P 500 is an index of 500 companies. They kind of bundle all up based on the company size, and it very well tracks essentially American companies over time. So he says, if you invest the same amount of money in that completely unmanaged index fund, and you invest that same amount of money with investment professionals, these are you know managed funds, he bet a quarter million dollars, or actually half a million dollars, that that unmanaged S&P index fund would outperform the actively managed funds, or you know funds of funds. So these are like hedge fund managers. And so this was 2007. 2017 came and went. And sure enough, the unmanaged S&P index fund had an average annual gain of 8.5%. All of the others were less than 4%, except for one, which was 6%. So there were five funds of funds that were competing against this unmanaged index fund, and it vastly outperformed. And the bet was essentially giving a million-dollar prize to the charity of their choosing. And so Warren's charity was the beneficiary of the million dollars because the managers lost the bet. But I just found that one single piece of advice. And he back-tested this as well over many different 10-year periods of time. And again, the S&P outperformed all the rest. So I think funds like uh, Ray Dalio's Pure Alpha are out, out of reach for everyday investors like you and I. But it took me about five minutes to purchase some S&P index funds. Good on you. Good on you. It feels like you've just primed us now, Chad. We've all switched into investor mode and I am super fired up. I think one of the key secrets to Buffett's investing success is that he has a partner in crime. I mean, if he is Batman, he's got a Robin and this man's name is Charlie Munger. And these two are just two old cats. When you hear them talk, it's all dry, straight to the point wisdom, and they're just good guys. And actually, let's have a listen to this first clip. And it explains a little bit how Warren invests and the influence that his dear friend Charlie Munger has on the process to be that you're looking for what test i'm looking for durable competitive advantage i'm looking for something that has a moat around it for a considerable period of time and i'm looking for an an honest and able management to run it because i don't know how to run it myself and i'm looking for a, a purchase price that's not excessive but it's better to pay a little too much for something that's a very good business uh than it is to buy some bargain uh but really a company without much of a future and I don't know, I don't have a 
ability to predict with a high, a high probability of success the future of most companies. So I'm looking for the exception. But the nice thing is, if there's thousands of companies out there, I really don't have to be right on a couple. I mean, it, it, it's exactly the opposite of, of baseball, where you have called strikes, and the pitcher's trying to throw it to you at the worst part of the strike zone for you. And if he succeeds in getting into that corner three times and you don't swing, you're out. And, and investing, it's, a no, it's an old called strike yeah. thing. So I can sit there all day and somebody can throw me one company after another, and finally I get one in my sweet spot. Uh, both of you have chosen both wives and partners well. Um, Charlie Munger added what to you? Oh, Charlie Munger changed my views. I mean, he refined them in a huge way in terms of looking for the quality companies and, and, and looking for the ability to make an investment that would work out well for five or ten or twenty years as opposed to something that might, there might be one I call it cigar butt investing, where there was one puff left in the cigar, but the cigar was free, so you picked up these disgusting-looking things and got one puff out of them and one onto another one. And that worked okay, but it was small-scale, and it really doesn't build something satisfying. So, so he, he kept forcing me in the direction of saying, you know, is this a, really a business we want to own for forever? And, and uh, do we want to get associated? It's like a marriage. I mean, do you want to get associated with this person forever? And uh, it's a great way to look at things. Looking at business deals like, do you want to marry them? It's not the time horizon that most of us are operating on. Yeah, and that is really one of the key investing philosophies that sets them apart. They are literally a buy and hold for the long term, 5, 10, 20 years. And they're so reluctant to sell because they just look for big long-term winners. And I think I think what we can take out of that is obviously there's some good investing advice. But I think one of the themes that you and I really love, Chad, is building a business for a long time. I believe it was Tim Riley who talked a lot about building a company for forever or beyond his lifetime because everybody seems to be building something for the next year or two. I really like this idea of just taking a breath and building something that has a bit of a legacy. It's a bit more long-term than that sort of instant business that we all seem to do these days. I'm wrestling with this idea now of how can I create my business in such a way that, you know, while I may be doing slightly different things and working with different clients, but like, how can I design my business for the long term, which is very different from some entrepreneurs thinking, you know, many serial entrepreneurs are looking to have massive impact very quickly. And then they sometimes move on to their next venture. Others live and die with their companies. It's not to say that one is wrong or the other, but I think I'm definitely more in the Warren camp of how can I design my business and how can I find the collaborators that maybe I wouldn't mind getting married to. <laughs> it's a great litmus test, isn't it? It kind of follows, you know, the like Silicon Valley, like no assholes rule that you often hear. I definitely think that there is a value in that. And I think Warren and Charlie's partnership speaks to the value of that. They have been so much more successful together over the long term as opposed to being apart. And, you know, Warren does directly attribute much of Berkshire's success to the additional thinking that, that Charlie offers. They're going to be lifelong friends. You know, they're in their 80s and 90s. So, and they've known each other for, for decades. It speaks very highly to, to them making that choice. Yeah, in a certain way, their relationship reflects their investment strategy, doesn't it? You know, mates for the long term. And actually, here's the really interesting thing. They've got this 
a really sharp investment strategy, which anchors itself in this long-term thinking. And the long-term thinking is you buy and you hold because stocks always go up on the long-term. So let's have a listen to Buffett now talking about why he's always a buyer of stocks. I never know what markets are going to do. There's never been a time in my life when I, I, I know what markets are going to do over a long period of time. They're going to go up. But uh, in terms of what's going to happen in a day or a week or a month or a year even, uh, I, I, I never felt that I knew it and I've never felt it was important. I, I, I will say that in 10 or 20 or 30 years, I think stocks will be a lot higher than they are now. You know, I, I know you look at things like that, but I, I also know that you look at stocks and try to decide if they're fairly valued, if they're overvalued, if they're looking cheap at this point. And we have been waiting for a correction for an awfully long time. That's finally come. Do, do stocks look cheaper to you just based on where we've come? Well, anytime stocks go down, as far as I'm concerned, I like it because I'm a net buyer of stocks. I'm, I've been buying stocks ever since I was 11 years old. So uh, when stocks go down, it's good news. Just like when hamburgers go down, it's good news. Or Coca-Cola goes down, it's good news in terms of anything I buy. Um, but, you know, stocks are going to go down. You could probably look it up as to what percent of the days, of the, you know, since I was born, they've gone down and maybe it'd be uh, 30% or something like that. And uh, you, you can't predict what stocks will do but in, in the short run. But you can predict that American business will do well over time. And uh, just take the 20th century. Stocks went from 66, the Dow average, 66 to 11,497, and, and you were getting three times as much in dividends as the whole average was selling for at the start. And you had, you had two world wars, and you had a Great Depression, flu epidemics, all kinds of things. Uh, uh, American business will do fine over time, and if you own a piece of it, and if you don't beat yourself, the only, the only person that can cause you to get a bad result in stocks is yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's the biggest problem is trying to fight yourself in some of these situations. Yeah. Have you been buying more stocks lately just because prices have come down? Have you upped your percentages and other things? Just We're because? almost always a buyer of stocks. Uh, so we have bought more stocks since the end of the year. Uh, but we had we earned 17 and a fraction billion last year, and we had our float go up 4 billion, which is additional money available. And so we're almost always a buyer of stocks, then we're a more aggressive buyer when they're going down. I mean, I, I, I feel much better when they're going down. But uh, it's hard to think of very many months when we haven't been a net buyer of stocks. Huh. This is a fascinating idea to me because he never mentions like selling the stocks. It's just he buys them, the value goes up, invests that money in more stocks, which is like a really interesting counterpoint to the three or five year exit strategies that so many entrepreneurs launch their businesses with today. So true. And he always talks this with great regret when he has to sell a stock. And it's just so powerful because he has such a long-term view and the market has become more and more short-term. And essentially, he is demonstrating his independent thinking. He's looking for great companies that are undervalued and he loves it when prices go down on the stock market because then more opportunities present themselves and this thinking is really key he has this great thought around you know when the market is in fear you should be greedy and when the market is greedy you should be in fear and what he is so powerful at doing is actually adhering to his own ideas of independent thinking and learning it like flies in the face of kind of, you know, the mainstream traditional thinking. Yeah. 
And at the heart of this, Chad, which I think all our listeners are going to love, is that he doesn't mind the ups and downs of the market because he has a clear philosophy. And I think if you're a founder of a company or whether you're investing your own money, you have to accept that businesses will have ups and downs, but in the end, you have a good bunch of people and they create a product or a service that solves a problem and they work hard at it all the time. This company will always in the end do well. And so whether you're investing in them or whether you're creating the company, there's some great advice that we can listen to from Buffett to kind of frame our thinking about the world. And here he is talking about staying the course. The last word, Warren, is a sort of free word association game that we've been playing lately. I say a word, you tell me what it makes you think of, and the question we get most frequently from people about you coming on is, what should they be buying right now? So if I say buy, you say... I, I, I say basically hold. I mean, the, the idea that the European news or slowdown in this or that or anything like that, that would not cause you if you owned a good farm and had it run by a good tenant, you wouldn't, you wouldn't sell it because somebody said, here's a news item, you know, this is happening in Greece or something of the sort. If you owned an apartment house and you got to raise your rents a little, it was well located and you had a good manager, you wouldn't dream of selling it. Uh, if you had a good business personally, um, um, the local McDonald's franchise, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be thinking about buying or selling it every day. Now, when you own stocks, you own pieces of businesses and they're wonderful businesses. You can pick the best businesses in the world. and. To buy or sell on current news is, 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 is just crazy. You're in a wonderful business. you got people running it for you. You know you're going to do well over five or ten years. And to think news events should cause you to try and dance in and out of something that's a wonderful game is a terrible mistake. So get into a bunch of wonderful businesses and stay with them. But you said, I, I said buy and you changed it to hold. Does that mean don't sell or does well, that mean? Well, I mean, if you, haven't, if you haven't got them yet, you buy them consistently over time. So you sort of average over time. And, and uh, I've been buying all my life. I bought my first stock, you know, when I was 11 years old and it was about three months after Pearl Harbor and Corregidor was falling and they had the death march at Bataan and all the news was terrible. It was a great time to buy stocks. And I should have held that stock forever and I've been buying stocks ever since. Chad, did you hear that? Oh, yeah. My first time I bought stocks was just after Pearl Harbor. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Did you hear that? Well, it's funny because I bought stocks after 9-11, but my time horizon was weeks, if not months. And so I was swept up in the swings of, of the markets. I was like a senior in high school, freshman in college. I was working with, I don't know, maybe $300. <laughs> but I, I think I bought Apple at like $40. And if I had just taken Warren's advice. Oh, Lord, don't even do the math. Don't even do it to yourself. It would be too hard. <laughs> I mean, one thing that I thought I knew about Warren was I, I thought I understood his investment advice. But listening to all these clips, and I hope that you the listeners are taking this away too, his like minimum time frame is five years. So like, what if you and I, Mike, had to commit to our businesses or our current ventures for five years? Mm, mm. And how would that change what we're doing? You know, how might we approach things differently if every hire we hired were, you know, worked with us for five years? It's a really fascinating thought experiment to me. And I just, I love how he's taking this contrarian point of view and stuck to it for decades, like 70 years. And, you know, it's just paid off to the tune of, of like almost $100 billion. 
I know, I know, I know. And this compounding when it happens means that when they make a move at Berkshire, when Buffett is putting capital to good use, the kind of effect both directly and indirectly is massive. And the wealth creation stories is really quite phenomenal. In fact, we could probably do a whole nother show about all the investing strategies of Buffett, but we actually have this great clip, which is a bit of a blitz through some of the ideas of Warren Buffett. And what's really cool about this upcoming clip is he's actually sitting down and chatting with Bill Gates. And these two guys have become really good buddies. And what do they play together? Is it bridge that they're both like bridge addicts or something like this? Yeah. Well, and Warren spearheaded the giving pledge to sign a pledge to give away most or all of their fortune. Right, right. And Warren's foundation has given the most money to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I think their friendship kind of started there, but yeah, bridge playing as well. Um, so here's this clip of the banter between Bill and Warren. When I met Bill on July 5th, 1991, I think we probably spent 10 or 11 hours talking. Yeah, two things that I picked up after meeting you was bridge was one and golf was another. <laughs> I was never a good golfer, and it was an excuse uh, to talk. It certainly wasn't about golfing. Whenever I see something, you know, take these very low interest rates, even negative interest rates, I'm always thinking, boy, I am looking forward to talking to Warren about that. <laughs> one thing that's fun is you have a very optimistic view about things. I think if I'm a sort of neutral in terms of optimism or pessimism, and I look at the facts around me, I look at what has happened in my lifetime. You know, put three of me end to end, and you're back before the Declaration of Independence was written. That progress in, in three lifetimes like mine, is, 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 it's mind-blowing. Since I've known you, you've always been good at taking finance things and making them simple. Do you think he, that came naturally, or did you learn over time just answering questions about finance decade after decade. I started teaching a course when I was 21 years old at the University of Omaha. I did that because I was terrified of public speaking earlier and had taken a Dale Carnegie course. And I felt I just had to get out there and start talking. Standing up for two hours in front of uh, a class helped me in learning to explain things. Well, it's amazing how you've gone through market periods that are utterly different, and yet your basic rules about what, what to do uh, remain unchanged. Yeah, the rules work. <laughs> They're not the easiest to apply. They won't tell you exactly when to buy or sell, obviously, but you'll never do anything stupid if you follow some fairly simple principles. When you get a chance to buy something of extraordinary value, whether it's a farm or an apartment house or a piece of a business or an entire business, the time to do it is then and not worry about whether you could do it a little cheaper a month later or two months later. Warren makes unique compensation agreements for the people who work for him. And having thought through, how do you incent good behavior? What's the best thing for the long term? I've learned a lot of how you think about uh, compensation. Basically, I want, them to, I want the paintbrush to be in their hand. And then when they paint something that they think is beautiful and I think is beautiful, I want to cheer like crazy for them. He wants to cheer like crazy for them. Now, that's a really interesting tell to how he manages, or you might say how he doesn't manage. He actually likes to get fiercely independent, autonomous people who take incredible degrees of ownership. And so a lot of the business kind of takes care of itself, which is just 
mind-boggling when you think about the wealth that they managed to create. And isn't it cool, Chad, just to listen to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, just two of the greatest minds of our time, just hanging out and chatting? Yeah, and two of the richest people as as well. But you don't get a sense of that in the tone. They're both like still quite nerdy and geeky, aren't they? Oh, yeah. If you do a little bit of biographical investigation on both of them, they spend an inordinate amount of time reading. Yeah. And they don't read in their respective fields, usually. Bill Gates kind of famously publishes his reading list. But, you know, Warren Buffett doesn't have a computer in his office and he spends most of his time reading instead. Annual reports, Chad. That's what he loves. <laughs> like apparently he sits there and will read six annual reports in a day, back to back, like front to back, like right through. Yeah. That's his pulse, you know, on yeah. what's happening. You know, he can slice and dice those things because he's been reading them forever. And that's how he gets to know the companies. There were five or six, you know, messages there in the banter between the two of them. But I think the biggest takeaway for me is just how similar in thinking styles they are. And seemingly, Mm -hmm. aside from they're both rich, you know, they're seemingly couldn't be much more different. Right. Yeah. High tech and low tech. It's very inspiring. And, you know, what's really cool is Buffett has thoughts on some of our other show favorites, Fred Smith, Jeff Bezos. And he's got such a fresh point of view when he looks outside of Berkshire Hathaway and shows you just a a little glimpse into how he sees the world. What's really interesting is that we did kind of our own take and interpretation on Bezos, kind of using our experience and expertise. I think Warren's genius is coming through here because while Warren's not trying to build the same kind of company as Jeff Bezos, Warren knows why Jeff Bezos has been successful with Amazon and he really delivers on it. He also slips in uh, Fred Smith, you know, another show favorite in this as well. Berkshire is not going to out Bezos, Jeff Bezos. That is for sure. What, what did you mean by that? What were you talking about? Well, I mean that there's certain people that you you do not want to try and beat at their own game. And certainly Jeff Bezos would be number one. I mean, that'd be like me playing chess with Bobby Fischer, you know, 40 years ago. to be all, all over on the first move. Uh, Jeff, you know, he's just shown amazing talent in figuring out how to please customers and uh, and, a, and in a very short time. And what's interesting to some extent about him, the same thing's interesting about Fred Smith of Federal Express. It isn't that they've had some breakthrough and, you know, found some molecule <laughs> this or that or, or come up with some, you know, incredible invention. They've taken fairly ordinary things. I mean, starting buying books and, and you know, but Fred Smith took the airplane and the delivery truck and the postal service but then they just put it together in a very imaginative way, you know, with a central hub and all that, and, and came up with a whole new industry out of components that were known to everybody. And in, in a sense, Bezos has done the same thing. Now he's building big distribution centers and employing the latest technology. The Kindle came out of there, and there's some products, but overwhelmingly, he's taken things that you and I were buying before, and he's figured out a way to make us happier buying those products, either by fast delivery or prices or whatever it may be. And that's remarkable when you think about it. I mean, a lot of that comes down to just focusing on what the customer wants. It's all he thinks about is, is he, he wants the customer to have a smile on their face. And, and, and now that's been true of other retailers. I mean, that is not something that R.H. Macy didn't think or Marshall Field or Bernard Gimble or all these people. But 
he knew how to do it, you know, in 1997 in a way that nobody else had come up with. And I'm sure his ideas even evolved as he was doing it. But he laid out his objectives in his first annual report. And you could just read them. I mean, his competitors could read them. And he has changed the world in a big way. When you talk about his game, I mean, it's, it's harder and harder to really identify what his game is. It's retailing, it's online retailing, but so much of Amazon's huge profits from the last uh, go-around came from AWS, from the cloud. And that's incredible because yeah. he, he developed that over a six or seven year period and everybody else sat and watched. And I mean, here was a guy that was a business genius and he's coming out with something big and the world... His competitors, to a large extent, just sort of ignored him. Customer obsessed and wants to put a smile on their face. I think Warren hit it on the head. Yeah, the customer obsession thing is big. But wasn't it interesting in the second half of that clip how you start to see Bezos also has a very long-term view of the world. Like You'll remember that Amazon famously in the first 10 years of their life reinvested all their profits into the business or they forwent profits in order to offer cheap prices and acquire customers, almost Buffett-esque in the way that they built that business. Buffett says, oh, and by the way, like Bezos told us that in his first annual report, again, going back to his daily reading, his annual mm-hmm. reports. Yeah, and it shows you how much data is actually sitting in his mind that he can just randomly recall a specific edition of the report, some information that was in it. And what we've just seen in those five clips is that Buffett works closely with Charlie Munger, so he's got a great partner in crime. He's always buying because he knows the fundamental truth that stocks will always go up. And when things go down, he doesn't panic. When things are tough, he doesn't panic. He stays the course. And really, the special thing that he has in all of this is great discipline, independent thinking. And I think, Chad, the biggest thing I'm taking from this is that all of his independent thinking and his smart investing comes from learning, sitting down and ripping through those annual reports, reading books, and hanging out with guys like Bill Gates. I think Warren Buffett is a great testament to this lifelong value of learning. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me is the value, not only in contrarian thinking and and kind of staying the course, but also a longer time horizon. Yes, yes. I think there's some changes going on in my business as I'm working with new and, and different clients, you know, offering new, hopefully innovative services. I think even this week, I'm going to take a step back and think, what might I be doing differently if I was committing to this for five years or 10 years or 20 years? What might I be able to learn from those thought experiments as I really expand time horizon? It's very easy just to not be able to see past the next Friday. (laughs) But that time horizon just seems like such a brave counter move to the immediacy of that flash trading based on machine learning and AI that dominates the market now. Basically, Buffett's like, I'm going to stick to my things. And do you remember in one of the clips, they're like, yeah, well, you've seen so many different ups and downs in the market, but your rules never change. Isn't that so powerful? Yeah. You know, he spent his early formative years, you know, coming up with and trying and testing those ideas. And once he found out that they worked, he just stuck with them. I think really fascinating. I mean, I'm 
sure they've changed a bit and there have been some new rules that have been created, but I would love to like travel back in time and follow him for those first maybe five or 10 years. I think he always knew that he would be successful probably not as successful as he actually is. But, you know, I think he was a fairly confident investor at first. But yeah, going back and figuring out how he was testing out and iterating, going into this build, measure, learn loop that we learned from Eric, what that process was like. If I had a time travel machine, that might be a place I would go back to and learn from. Without a doubt, you know, what we see in Buffett is a great learner. And what's so exciting Uh, is that he writes and shares all of his learnings once every year in that letter to shareholders, which all of our listeners can go out and read. And we've got a link to that in our show notes at moonshots.io. What I think we just had was a real treat, Chad. I don't think there are many better wisdom sharers, knowledge sharers than that of Warren Buffett. But he is not the only great investor that we're going to deep dive on. Oh, no. Who else have we aligned in our little portfolio? We've just done Warren, but there's three others, Chad. Yeah, so we kind of started with the folksy Oracle of Omaha, and we're working our way towards the flashy uh, Silicon Valley investors. So we're also going to be learning from Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, the largest and most successful hedge fund Paul Graham, famed Silicon Valley investor and just great thinker. And then our last in the series, we're turning to Peter Thiel, who's been quite controversial in many ways, but relates all the way back to our first moonshotter that we profiled, Elon Musk, in that he's also part of the PayPal mafia. Indeed. And Peter Thiel has probably invested in, or I think, a number of the companies of the people we've showcased and none other than uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook. He was the first investor. We've got three more incredible investors to showcase here on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed kicking this series off with Warren. I think he was a great entree into the world of investing. Yeah, yeah. And something for the investor mind and the power of his ideas. And I think they can easily be applied to the entrepreneurial mindset, the business mindset. So I think there's a little bit of something for everyone in Warren Buffett. And we really do hope that everybody takes the time to check out those show notes at moonshots.io or go onto iTunes and just leave us a fabulous review. I think how many reviews have we got now? I think we've got seven reviews or, or something. We need to get into double figures, Chad. Yeah, I haven't I haven't checked. You know me, I don't check our metrics. You, I'm the one who loves the metrics. You surprised me. So we've almost crossed 3,000 listens with Simon Sinek, which was amazing. We're shooting for 10K listens an episode, right, Mike? That's the goal. So get in there, start clicking, start listening, people. It's been a pleasure kicking off this investment series with you. Again, just really looking forward to going into a world I've been interested in since I was young. Like I said, I invested in stocks in high school. I even did a bit of day trading at one point, nothing too serious. But I think my experience in not making any money, it was a net zero. It really drives home the fact that I'm just going to be putting all of my investment money in an unmanaged S&P 500 index fund. Just take Warren's advice, the proof from his 10-year bet and have that play out for me. 
Hilarious, hilarious. Yeah, I'm sure we've all got great investing fails somewhere in the closet. So a lot to learn from not only Warren, but the next three shows. So a big thank you to you, Chad, for being such a great host of the show and kicking around ideas. It's really so much fun. And thank you to you, all of our listeners. We love all your feedback, your emails, all your social tweets and whatnot. We love to invite you to moonshots.io to check out everything that's moonshots related and stay tuned because we have another great investor coming. So thank you to you all. And that's a wrap of the Moonshots podcast. Podcast.